Hello, everyone. This is Ethan Heisler. Welcome back to the Bank Treasure Newsletter Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Mike Friddle, the CEO, and Jeff Sharp, Head of Products at Iris Sofer Swaps Futures. I'm pretty sure that most of the people listening to this probably have not heard of this. In a nutshell, it, it packages a pay fix received floating rate interest rate swap into a futures product. And we'll get to learn a little bit more about it in a second. But beforehand, I want to back up and get to know a little bit more about Mike and Jeff, my guests. So, Mike, walk me a little bit through your career. I actually grew up on the exchange side. I worked for the Chicago Board of Trade and then was acquired by CME in 2007 and worked for them for, for several years on the business development side. So, you know, operating the markets through CME and then doing alliances with other markets. So in my last role at CME before I left, I was responsible for alliances with exchanges that CME partnered with in Brazil, Dubai, Korea, and Mexico, and then left to help start what at the time was Eris Exchange and has morphed into Eris Innovations over the years. So I really have sort of an exchange infrastructure background uh, specifically within future. So I would imagine that over your years, things have sort of changed in the electronic exchange world. What would you observe has changed? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I didn't know it at the time when I stumbled my way into the market, but I was sort of riding a wave that would go for a couple of decades of taking markets that were generally operated on the floor or on the phone and adapting them to what we call the screen, you know, to electronic trading. And so certainly that has been the story of my career and, you know, many others who have been in the capital markets during this time period. And with that comes whole new ways of trading. Certainly things like latency to the host is, is a lot more of an important factor in your trading success than where you went to college. Latency to the host? What is that? Latency to the host. Just the concept that the amount of time as measured by distance or vice versa between a server and the electronic trading platform host for CME, that's Globex, can help determine how successful you are versus others. CME and other exchanges do a nice job of operating what they call co-location services to make sure that, you know, quote unquote, closest to the host is a level playing field across anyone who wants to be as, as close as they can be. This is so, like the Michael Lewis Flashpoint thing? Yeah, Michael, Michael Lewis's Flashpoint's book, you know, a couple other books on it. I think there was one out by an author whose name escapes me, uh, Trading at the Speed of Light. You know, you ask what's different in electronic trading from when I started. This is different. The idea that distance or latency of your trading connection, but there's still plenty of markets where there's real risk transfer going on. And I think Eris is an example of that. We'll get into it a little bit going forward here, but it's not, not all the market in electronic trading is all about latency arbitrage or not taking any risk and going home flat at the end of the night without a position. There's still plenty of firms out there who are taking real risk, warehousing risk on a daily basis. It's all centrally cleared at places like CME and ICE and other futures markets, but there, there's still a lot of risk transfer going on in the markets just in different ways and in different places. And last question, and we'll turn over to Jeff, but do you think that these changes have increased the volume of trading on these exchanges? I mean, what have you seen there? Oh, yeah. I mean, exponential increase in the volume of trading. You know, electronic trading and the visibility of pricing and has opened up the market significantly. 30 years ago, if you wanted to trade U.S. futures, you had to be part of a club or take a fairly torturous path in order to be a customer of the exchange and call in your orders and have them go to the pit and hopefully be filled at a price that was decent and then get reported back. Hopefully by the end of the day, sometimes on a busy day, you would even hear about your fill until the next day. Now we're in a world where all of that, all of those steps can happen within a second easily. And it has led to ex explosive growth going back to the early 2000s. Those are the, the innovations that led to companies like at the time CBOT, where I came from, Chicago Board of Trade, CME both went public in 2005 and 2005. 
respectively. And we've been reaping the benefits of that ever since in terms of exploding participation and volume in the markets. Jeff, tell me about your background. So I, I come from the Wall Street trading background. I spent 25 years in between Credit Suisse, Lehman Brothers, and Nomura Securities, where I traded currency options to start with and then interest rate options for a while. But the tail end of my career, I was covering money center banks, uh, GSIBs, non-bank financials, helping them manage their interest rate risks. And interest rate swaps were central to that. And I've seen interest rate swaps go from barely on the screen with very little price discovery to screen-based information market, yet still traded bilaterally, to what we have today where there is you know, an efficient, centrally cleared swap market that trades electronically, plus this new addition, and that is swaps that trade in futures form on a listed exchange. Right. And that brings a whole host of new efficiencies to the market. What would you say as a trader today, thinking about this with a lot of banks that I've talked to over the last couple of months, what would you say about whether or not it's a good idea today with the current market to be hedging a portfolio of fixed rate securities? What would you do here, you, Mr. Trader? I'm going to hold you to answering this question eventually. I know you're going to avoid it. But and I'm and going I'm going to make to some statements that, that could be taken as controversial. For the okay. longest time, banks have avoided hedging because they ran, just to, to be fair, diversified businesses. But two, they could take money in as deposits in a positive yield curve environment, and this is important, positive yield curve environment, meaning that term rates were higher than short-term rates, i.e. five-year rates were higher than overnight rates. So they would take deposits in from you know, retail depositors and corporate depositors, and they would then lend that out term and they would earn an interest spread in part because they charge an interest spread, but also de facto because there was a difference between overnight rates and five-year rates. And perhaps unfairly, they got lazy. Perhaps there are, uh, to be fair, there are many more complex factors at play here, but today that curve is now inverted. So if you're borrowing money at overnight rates and you're lending it term, you are experiencing a negative carry trade. I am underwater. That is hedgeable. And the way to hedge that is you convert your long-term asset into a short-term floating rate asset, which banks can do, and they can do this through the accounting as well. Or the other way around is you can say, well, I've got secured five-year floating rate funding. Let me turn it into secured fixed rate funding for five years so that there is no duration gap. So in today's environment, in a negative yield curve, more than ever, you need to be taking this stuff seriously. And I should do this because you would say volatility has increased a lot more than what you've seen in markets in the past? Certainly from the last decade. I mean, you go back a couple decades, maybe not, but certainly since probably 2000, interest rate volatility has been relatively low until the recent uh, you know, three-year period. So Jeff, let me ask you, I mean, you, know, you, you think about Interest rate swaps, you point out, they've been around for a lot of decades now. How much do you think boards of directors of banks, how much do you think that they understand what an interest rate swap is? Or how much do you think the average bank CFO, 
or CEO understands about these financial products that have been around a very long time? So empirically, we hear that the top 20 to 30 banks have a relatively structured and, and sort of constructive approach towards use of derivatives for hedging the balance sheet. Yeah, now, and they're sophisticated users. And they're sophisticated. So they have trading desks, they have models, all of this, this stuff that's important. Once you go below that threshold, very little to no hedging is taking place. So that's sort of the empirical evidence. Now, anecdotally, in speaking to banks below the sort of large threshold, and let's say the 100 to 200 billion is large, and below that you're getting into smaller territory, Below 100 billion, you're getting into banks that don't have a trading desk, don't have models, don't necessarily have someone who could, in an Excel spreadsheet, build a swap. And there is also in the boardroom a tremendous amount of fear associated with trading in derivatives, given the past 20 years of history where you know you have notable statements where people saying that this stuff is toxic waste, yet they use them themselves because they're more sophisticated. And you end up with sort of an unusual situation whereby huge numbers of U.S. banks operate without any elements of derivative interest rate risk management, not to say they don't have risk management, but no derivative interest rate risk management. And there are some significant benefits to using them if you understand them, if they're easy to access, and there's disclosure. You know, Jeff, we were talking about this earlier, about the complications of just setting up documents to do an interest rate swap with a dealer is quite complicated. One of the things I've questioned is whether or not smaller banks have access. I've found that there are small institutions that do have access to the street, but I am struck by just the overall costs involved in the time. I think it's a huge impediment. Mm -hmm. I think smaller institutions don't reach the threshold of carrying what's called today an over-the-counter derivative clearing agreement with over-the-counter clearing merchants because they're just not large enough to meet the cost thresholds of the banking system that operate these entities. And so they're left with one option. You know, we obviously introduced the second and that is theirs, but the traditional option is a bilateral swap. Mm -hmm. And that could take months, months, you know, maybe up to nine months to negotiate depending on the entity. It can be costly and it can be confusing. And, you know, it deters them from trading swaps to a degree. Can you go in and out of interest rate swaps? I mean, is yeah. it as easy as basically saying I'm receive fixed today and tomorrow I want to be, I want to close out the position and be pay fixed? Yes, you can, but you're assigning ease to the final stage of the transaction and that is the execution. Mm -hmm. Ease to a bank is so much more than that. It's like, uh, I don't have a guy that understands it. All right. So okay. I have to learn. Right. I'm uncomfortable. I always get confused with paying or receiving. I know I do. <laughs> right. So is it easy to transact? Yes. Is it easy to have the pieces in place to transact? No. And this is why big banks, it's, it's more prevalent. They have all of this in place. But if you're a $10 billion bank, trading interest rate swaps is a big lift. And we actually make it significantly easier with CMEs. There are so swap futures which are listed instruments. Mm -hmm. Price discovery is not a request based. It's there on the screen for you to see. There's full exchange disclosure. And you trade in an instrument that you have the comfort that someone else is also trading too. So price discovery isn't up to you. It, the market has created the price discovery. 
And that gives end users a lot of comfort. So Mike, let me, let me turn back to you for a second. So as you were sitting in your office a couple of years ago and thinking about the creation of this product, I mean, why wasn't this product around earlier? This is so obvious. Where were you guys? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, I, I would say different exchanges from, you know, life in Europe to, to Eurex to Chicago Board of Trade, my alma mater, if you'll call it that, um, at various times had tried versions of cash settled swap futures, sort of, you know, CBOT, I think in, it was the year 2000 or so invented a, a cash settled swap future that settled to the is the fix and that had a predetermined fixed coupon, of, you know, it started at 6% and then went to 4%. So there was always the concept of doing it. I think the difference in Eris is that it didn't require actually rolling on a quarterly basis. There was an aha moment around the product design where in the early stages, some of the key founders identified that in order to truly match the cash flows of a swap, if you want to make a swap in a futures form, it has to be able to be traded and, and actually last for the full, you know, one year, two year, five years, 10 years, even 30 years as if it were a swap. Essentially, if you think of a swap as an agreement to exchange fixed and floating payments at certain moments in time. And so if you clear that swap, you essentially have a central counterparty calculating the value of a fixed rate versus overnight SOFR over time with quote unquote annual payments. That's something that you can call a swap or you can run the same calculations and clear it as a future. And then there was this one additional component where they said, if we can clear that as a future and actually have it last 10 years, if people want to trade a 10 year swap and hold it for that long, instead of rolling it on a quarterly basis in Eris, you can do either. If we're going to match up the cash flows with a swap, we truly have to match up all of the cash flows. And so um, there's this concept of price alignment interest or uh, price alignment adjustment that CME calls it, which is essentially an adjustment to recognize the value of overnight collateral being held by one of the two counterparties in a swap. So Happy to get into more details, but don't want to don't mm -hmm. want to bore people with it. But it was really that insight of if this is a future that lasts the, the length of a swap and has all of the cash flows, including price alignment interest, then that's really a swap in a futures form. And you know that took a while to come up with. There, there's one other thing. I, what I would say hurdles to product development or product appetite was the fact that central clearing was not required until 2012 mm -hmm. to 14, mm -hmm. right? So. End users had no mandate to clear their swaps. They could just trade bilaterally. And prior to the global financial crisis and Basel III sort of all coincides with this to a certain degree in that swaps were off balance sheet, low capital usage. So it was incredibly capitally efficient to trade bilateral interest rate swaps. Now it lumped a lot of counterparty risk onto the banking system and it lumped a lot of counterparty risk onto the recipients of the swap. So if you face Lehman on a bunch of interest rate swaps, you know, bless you, right? And I sympathize because I work there. Central clearing is a new notion and that sort of has leveled the playing field with like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should consider futures because they are centrally cleared instruments. And there are some advantages, some efficiencies here that we can tap. So that's a key point. You have the efficiency of a cleared market. You have where the risk is no longer just borne by a few dealers with all the unattended problems that we saw during the financial crisis. And now you have another leg too, right? You have SOFR, right? SOFR in a SOFR swap, that's a more standardized benchmark than what we had with LIBOR. So I would imagine that also enhances this market significantly. Let me ask you another question, Jeff. So this is an interest rate swap. So it's receive fixed pay floating or 
pay floating receive fixed depending upon whether i'm buying or selling but what's the fixed leg of the swap is that a five year or a ten year or three month this is the beauty of the heiress complex to a degree there are newly listed instruments every three months so it's a standardized contract with tenors of one year two year three year four year five year seven year 10-year, 12, 15, 20, and 30-year contracts. And they are listed every three months. So it's a series of newly minted standard tenor instruments every three months. And they don't mature. They, they, they just, don't mature until the end of the underlying swap. And the underlying swap could be a five-year, could be a 30-year. Right. It could be. To what Mike was talking about before. Uh -huh. okay. That's right. And actually, there are some outstanding 30-year era SOFA contracts in open interest that are mm -hmm. off the run. They, they, you know, they're, they're now 25 year or 26 year. Okay. So that really gives me a great deal of flexibility if I'm a treasurer of, of thinking about, well, okay, what I really need here is a medium because I have a five year or a three year type duration loan That's book. Right. And so a lot of the purposes that I see banks use swaps for today would be in terms of their commercial loan portfolio. So they do a floating rate loan, then offer that customer a back-to-back -back interest rate swap against that. How would this product work in that context? So in that context, and it depends whether the bank wants to offer the customer a nice and easy fixed rate loan. It's like here, you can have a floating rate loan at SOFA plus X, or you can have a fixed rate loan at Y. Mm -hmm. What the bank really wants is a floating rate asset because he's got floating rate financing liabilities, his deposits. So the bank could put on a swap against that asset, that loan asset, and turn it into a floating rate asset. Now, historically, banks typically didn't do that because the accounting made it tricky for the bank. So what the bank would do is make a floating rate loan, and then they would offer the customer a swap. And then they would back-to-back -back that swap with the Wall Street Bank. So ABC, local copy company, would take out a loan for three years, floating rates, and they may want fixed. And that company might do a swap with that local community bank, and the community bank would then do a swap back-to-back -back with the Wall Street swap dealer. There are two paths that the market can now take. One, there's been developments in the accounting standards that effectively allow the bank to put that loan, a fixed rate loan on the balance sheet in held to maturity and then earmark it for hedge accounting treatment and run mark-to-market gains through OCI against the mark-to-market losses on, uh, and gains on the swap. So that's one path. The other path is the bank could guide the customer to doing error swap futures to hedge them. That's a little bit more cumbersome, to be honest, because the bank's probably not a futures broker, but it's a path that could be taken. We've seen banks offer rate fixes using Eris SOFA contracts in the past, but it's not as clean okay. as the bank hedging it themselves. But the new development here is that accounting standards have advanced to allow banks to do this more efficiently. Right. My bond portfolio, for sure. This is easy, With your bond portfolio, for sure. It's a layup because it's available for sale. It's sort of a quarterly mark-to-market to the balance sheet rather than to earnings. You know, traditionally held to maturity is not mark-to-market at all, understandably so. But 
one can earmark a portfolio within health and maturity and say, I am going to carve this portfolio out and I'm now going to assign, designate some Aeroswap futures to hedge that layer of the portfolio. And in that instance, what you do is you stabilize earnings. You, you know, the, the, the earnings or gains or losses from the derivative are offset by the gains or losses in the portfolio layer. And, you know, you essentially stabilize earnings at the income level as well. Okay, but just to reiterate, so we can use it for the bond portfolio. I guess I could use it for a big macro hedge if I was going to deal with the accounting issues related to that. That's right. And as far as the loan portfolio is concerned, uh, some parts of it are definitely applicable for this product, but some may be a little bit more awkward, but not undoable if a bank wanted to do it. The other thing that really impressed me with this product was, you know, we talked before about access to a dealer and getting coverage. This is a lot simpler to get access to a futures broker who could give me access to this product. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and I could have a futures account trading Aero Sofa Swap Futures if we wanted to. Just educate me. How many futures brokers actually trade Aero Sofa Swap Futures? So we're not aware of any brokers that do not offer it for mm -hmm. clearing. Independent futures brokers, I think they're probably around six. Non-bank futures brokers, they're, 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 they're six or seven. I would say that, you know, Eris is probably concentrated in a smaller number. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, 30 or 40 clearing firms on CME, all of them. They clear Eris, you know, like yeah. like like anybody who has an account open at a bank, FCM, can clear Eris today. That's if you can true. trade If you can trade treasury futures, you can trade Eris. That's absolutely true. Just as a final question, you know, products have succeeded on the exchanges and some have not. Mike, this may be a good question for you. In your mind, what are the succeeding values here? What makes this product something that you think will succeed on the CME? This one, this one's easy and, and it's because it's, it's fun. This is, this is what we live every day. Eris, what makes it unique and sort of different from the sort of 95%, I think is sort of the headline number of new futures products that ultimately never succeed or last past two or three years. Number one is that it offers a compelling reason to trade because it's a swap instrument that people use today and have lots of uses for, but available in a futures form that makes it democratized to the whole market, accessible to people, trade sort of in a lit transparent environment where there's pre-trade transparency, there's post-trade transparency. And the, the biggest of all is simply that for reasons we can get into, futures initial margin is a lot lower than swap initial margin if you know compared to like a cleared swap. So uh, we talk every day with hedgers who have directional positions in say a five-year or a 10-year who are posting in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars to exchanges in, in order to guarantee their financial performance going forward. And we're saying that's in swap form. You can have an identical risk position in futures form that goes up and down with SOFR just in the same way that your current hedge does, but where you're posting you know, 65% less in capital. That starts a lot of conversations. And at some level, what makes this product unique is that it's coming up alongside a successful swap market, which has been traded for years and sort of linking the two worlds together through this concept of portfolio margining, which CME offers. This is what's really changed this year and what's brought ERA SOFR on the map 
for a lot of participants is that in the old world, when CME listed Sofer separately from swaps, if there was any market maker, for example, you know, taking a position in Eris 10-year versus a hedger, we'll say, and then offsetting it with swaps, hedging it with swaps for market risk purposes, they would have to pay a lot of money in initial margin to the exchange, even though from a market risk standpoint, they were essentially hedged, virtually 100% hedged, they would still pay essentially double margin to the exchange for those positions. Since CME has started to margin net those and just recognize that even though they're cleared in different clearing guarantee funds, that for lack of a better term, long a swap and short a future when they're essentially the same thing, it, it means that you can significantly discount, but not to zero, the initial margin that you hold. That is a lot of words that basically mean market makers are willing to take a whole lot larger position. They're willing to make a lot tighter prices on the screen because if they're holding a position overnight or for multiple months or even years, they can do so. For sure. I mean, if you're in a world of SLR and LCR, I can understand why I would like to use this product if you're telling me to have less initial margin. Yes, I'm not a bank regulatory expert, but there are But I would think there that are some major calculations. dealers would be cognizant of that. I mean, cognizant for sure. So I, I can break it down like this. To the extent that there's any regulatory rules or holdback of equity or capital that is based on notional value held, you're going to hold back the same amount for trading a swap versus a future. But to the extent that there are any uh, regulatory advantages to being able to have your house book, for example, as a swap dealer to be netting down initial margin, you're going to have a nice benefit from trading errors and offsetting it with swaps. Okay. I mean, from what I've heard, we have a product that makes it a lot easier for regional and community banks to access this product, to put on hedging, to be able to explain that to their boards in a fairly straightforward manner, and to not be concerned about the fact that, well, I'm a fairly small institution. What kind of access do I have to a big dealer desk that can give me access to the swap market? And by the way, I can look up the price right there on the machine every single day. And, and incidentally, one more thing, it's being already done. And it's being already done. It's being used as designated fair value hedges. It's been used as cash flow hedges in the past. So, you know, it, it, it is tried and proven. Fantastic. Mike Riddle, Jeff Sharp, thank you very much for joining me. Era Sofer Swaps Futures. If you're a bank treasurer and you're listening to this call, I would be glad to introduce you to these guys. I think that this is definitely a product that should be on people's radars. Thanks very much. We'll see thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Later.